Welcome to SciPod Radio, where we bring you the story behind the science. I'm your host, Tom Render, and today we're joined by Zach Lipton. Zach is the Assistant Professor at Tepper School of Business at Carnegie Mellon University, where his research focuses on machine learning. So welcome to the show, Zach. Pleasure to have you here. Hey, thanks for having me. No worries at all. Um, so I think a good place to start, um, you know, there's probably maybe three people listening who have not heard of you before. They've been living on a rock or something. Um, so let's start with the origin story. Um, you know, if this is comic book episode one, what, what's your what's your story? Um, pretty, pretty unremarkable. You know, I uh, I grew up in uh, in New Rochelle, which is a, a suburb of New York City. So I kind of had a, um, at, le- at least at that stage in life, you know, I don't have any uh, great triumphs over obstacles or something. I grew up in like a fairly um, pleasant uh, suburban town. Um, I was a musician. I guess that was a kind of, uh, I kind of got like lost in the public school system. I think there's a way that if you're, if you're academically inclined, you actually, I think it, that, that there's a tendency to get bored really early. Um, Mm. And so music, I think, early on in my life was, uh, I, I don't, don't want to like, uh, in some way, trivialize like how important it was to me or something, but in some ways it's part, part of, I think, what was attractive was just that it's it sort of uh, like it wasn't bound, like it was, a, it was this kind of nerdy thing you could do that it wasn't really bound up in, um, in the, like the rhythm of coursework. So, you know, you, yeah. I was a jazz musician and, and all the information you were trying to acquire, things you were trying to figure out harmonically or um, mm. you found them either through uh, your social circle, which was uh, or, or, or from the records, you know, from, from learning music. So, so I really, music was the only thing I was thinking about um, from the time trying I was to in high school. Trying to become Miles Davis. Yeah, right. Trying to become a <laughs> Jewish Miles Davis. Um, it didn't work out. <laughs> Um, yeah. And I, I, you know, I, I guess I, I, I never loved the idea of music school the same way. Like, uh, I kind of like, I, I think part of maybe it was, maybe it was just like part of what I liked about music was, I mean, I think also jazz music, I think there are other things like, I think maybe more like European music has a, a more natural relationship with the conservatory type environment, but I think jazz music, there was something kind of weird about like, you know, you have these people with like PhDs, like uh, who, you know, often were not the stronger players who were like having a lot of the prominent teaching posts. I think that's changed a bit recently. Mm. And so um, it seemed like it's very weird, unnatural fit of uh, music and academia. And um, I kind of like, um, I, I did my undergraduate at Columbia University. And I think part of what was attractive there was basically living in New York and being able to have my kind of like autonomy in music that wasn't kind of tied to the institutional structure. But then I got to spend my academic life um, taking courses in math and economics. And that was what I did for my undergrad. Okay. And uh, yeah, so I was just a musician until my mid twenties, late twenties. But at some point I learned how to program. Mm. Uh, I taught myself just to, uh, well, I took a couple classes undergrad at some point, like a little bit too late, like summer after junior year or something. I was like, oh, wait a minute. That's uh, that was maybe what I should have done or something. Yeah. Um, the thing about the computational way of thinking that, you know, once you once you kind of understand like how to represent something, compu- you know, 
in, in terms of data structures and manipulate, start thinking about like the, the, the fundamental structure of, of tasks, which is what, you know, algorithms research is. Yeah. There's something kind of really powerful about that just in general as a lens for thinking about problems. So I found that kind of alluring, but it was too late to change my major. So I just kind of thought about doing a joint, like whatever, but then I let it slip and got more interested in playing music again. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was only like when I was 26, 27, um, and I was living in the Lower East Side and I was living in this you know, nasty, smelly, rent-controlled apartment where, like, I think the strategy of the landlord was to let, like, enough mold grow that everybody would leave and then they could, like, <laughs> like declare the building blighted and rip it down and rebuild it and then jack up all the rents yeah. or something. Um, so I was just kind of miserable and unhealthy. I wasn't feeling good. And uh, a friend of mine did a PhD in Santa Cruz, which is the most beautiful place in the world. So, um, so I, I like came out just to hang with my friend, um, who's a great composer and pianist now, uh, named Tobin uh, Chodos, and he, uh, he's uh, back then he was a jazz musician primarily. I mean, I think you know he's still a great jazz musician. Um, but he, he decided to go to grad school for music, which you know again like music academia wasn't what I wanted mm-hmm. to do, but just the experience of going out and spending two weeks with him, like he had gone to UC Santa Cruz before. Uh, he ended up, we actually both wound up at UCSD together a couple of years later, but I just went out and, and visited him. And there was something just about spending a couple of weeks uh, just hanging out with PhD students in just a certain environment, something that I had been missing about being out of school for five or six years, with just uh, um, a bunch of smart people, uh, like uh, reading a lot and then uh, yeah. arguing with each other, like felt, felt like home. Um, it's like a very New York perspective on what <laughs> academia is. Um, yeah, so so basically, I just came out. I had this, I had this picture in my head. Like, I, I, I honestly, I didn't know any. I had taken two computer science classes and learned yeah. how to build a couple websites. So I, I really didn't know anything. But um, that experience of just being in, like, the whole package, like being out. I hadn't really spent that much time in NorCal before. So just being in, like, sub, you know, being being out in California mm-hmm. on the beach. Um, you know, it's like beautiful, uh, beautiful weather, uh, beautiful people. And by beautiful people, I mean, it's just like a healthy yeah. feeling, you know, it's like all the food is yeah. fresh, like 90 year olds look like they're 20. And, I um, and I just, you know, had this feeling of like, yeah, I want, like, I want some, something like qualitatively like, like that. And I came back, I was like, yeah. I'm going to do a PhD. And I was like, in what? And I was like, we'll figure it out. Um, and I, I, I broke the lease on my apartment. Um, so they let me get out early. Um. I uh, signed up to take the GRE. I had some couple, I, I developed a couple of close friends who are professors, just um, mm. kind of socially. Um, one in particular, uh, who's a biophysics professor, Julio Fernandez at, at Columbia. And I had built a website for him and then we stayed in touch and we would just like have coffee and he became a little bit of like a, a mentor to me. So I had a, some sense of what academia mm. was like just from hanging out around his lab. And he... Uh, we talked about it and he had been telling you, know, he's the kind of person in my life who was always like, oh, you should go to grad school. Um, he's like, the, maybe the, like before up to that point, the person who, the one person I knew who thought that was a place where I belonged. Um, so I came back to him. I was like, I think I want to go to grad school. And I was like, well, maybe I should do, you know, all my only contact with it was hanging out in his biophysics and maybe I should do what you do. You know, and he's like, you don't be horrible. Don't do it. You know, you don't, like, like you've had no wet lab experience. He's like, you're gonna spend seven years learning how to pipette, and then you're gonna be a little, like, a slightly useful lab tech. And by that point, <laughs> you'll be forty years old. Yeah. You know. Um, 
something like that. It was like basically like this is this is a good game if you if you get in and you are you're you're rolling with it, but but you don't want to mm. not know what you're doing. Um, yeah. So basically, he was like, you know, uh, like he, I, you know, I guess he he knew that that because I had I had figured out how to program to build his website. He's like, you know, uh, like, seems a bit more of a more natural route to um, go. Kind of. Yeah. So, I mean, computer science kind of was this thing that I had had this like brief moment of a connection with earlier. And then um, I think putting it together with like, what were the things in mathematics that I found interesting? Like they were mostly problems really like probability and statistics that I, that mm. I had thought were cooler when I was an undergrad, you know? Um, and so basically like, I had this like very loose idea in my head that's like, you know, you don't have to go that far. Like I want to do grad school in um if you want to do grad school in computer science and you're drawn like towards uh you know probability and statistics or whatever then then the machine learning is kind of obviously the yeah. the direction so i like you know it came together like very sloppily but like very quickly it's like very specific thing I'm like i'm gonna move to california um i'm gonna figure out how to <laughs> make myself a little presentable and then i'm gonna get into grad school yeah. and do a phd in machine learning but I didn't know any machine learning. Like it was really crazy. Uh, I, I just like had never implemented a single machine learning algorithm in my life. But that was that was like the uh, the 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 quest. And I think I think the, the yeah. turning point was just like once I made a decision to leave, and I left home. Like that was the thing. I think if I stayed in New yeah. York, I would have just kept doing the same thing for the rest of my life. But there's something about changing your place. Like I we took I took a my family had an old like Toyota Corolla and. Uh, my folks let me borrow it. So I, a friend came with me and we drove across <laughs> the country and we just road tripped the whole way there. And then, uh, yeah. and then I, I was the first time in a long time that I, I wasn't trapped in a New York lease. So yeah. I, I biked the California coast and, you know, did some, did some fun things to, uh, get out of my system. Um, but I was like very clear, like I, you know, this whole vision, like I'm going to move to California and do this thing. So like, I, 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 I mm. the day I arrived, I became a California resident. Yeah. And then uh, I lived in San Francisco for a year, um, worked with some startups eventually. Um, uh, well, I lived in San Francisco for a little while and then moved, moved across the Bay to Oakland. So the jazz, um, the jazz guy from New York so, moved to, uh, across the country and then worked in tech in some startups. <laughs> By the coast, chilling. <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, I think up yeah. to that point, it's not, that's not so unusual story. Like I think... Uh, I think a lot of jazz musicians have uh, the aptitude. Like, like people always like to do this music math thing. It's kind yeah. of bullshit. Um, well, forgive my <laughs> gotta go. Okay. I'm on the radio. Gotta watch my mouth. Um, I mean, I, I, a, I know a lot of math. I know a lot of tone deaf mathematicians, and I know a lot of uh, musicians who are not, you know, especially mathematically inclined. Um, but I think there is something sort of more about the like that. That is a bit natural about being a good software developer that's like not so surprising that you see a bunch of jazz musicians who these days i'm seeing it more and more who their like moonlighting gig is they they build websites or they do a little software development because you know you gotta there is something creative in it and um there's something nerdy about it and then there's something about like that requires you to be a bit autodidactic i think to stay current well, that that is a natural fit yeah, i think I mean, that, that's got, a big, big part of it, yeah right? yeah i don't think it's that unusual to yeah, I, th I think where maybe I'm more unusual was like going whole hog into academia. And then, um, you know, I think I think up into the point of like being involved in some startups or whatever, I actually know a lot of musicians who've who've made that. I think if you're going to be in that kind of sector and you want to disrupt it, 
you have to have that flair of creativity. Otherwise, you're just not going to be able to. You're just not going to be out. You know, you're trying to solve problems for an area which is still amazingly new, where people are trying to break new ground and do things that have never been done. So if you've got zero creativity, that's just not going to happen. You're just going to reinvent things that have already been invented. Um, so I think it is an important element to have that level of well, there are rules, but where can we break them? Yeah, like I think um, I I think that's part of it. It's hard to say, like, I think that could come from many different places. And I don't want to be like, I think there's a little bit of a cliche of like, you know, I'm a musician, so therefore I'm whatever. And, and I don't, you know, like, I'm so creative or whatever. I, I don't know if that's really true. Um, but I think there, there there's some, there's some, maybe something that just, uh, well, look, your research is, uh, is a community that sort of necessarily values novelty in some sense. Like, what you're doing is, um, it's like some some like multiplicative factor of like how useful it is and like how the extent to which it hasn't already been done before or something like that. So I think like the f- just looking at things a bit differently is uh, valuable and, and maybe having a different background or getting in late yeah. kind of changes or, or makes it easier. But if only because you don't know what the main thing is. Like when I showed up, and it was very different from when I was in music even because I think when I was in music, I was very conscious of who my peer group was and like whether I was kind of where they were or not you know what i mean and that that means that you're thinking about the the things that are like the milestones it's a very conformist way of thinking right you're like looking over your shoulder like ah oh, it's people i grew up with they're playing the village vanguard now they're playing they're going on tour like am i in the i got do you know you know it's like which is that's not a creative place to be thinking i think i was actually maybe a little too um aware of that and one thing that was maybe liberating so i so i don't know if it's as much even being a musician it's just being like um being like an old person that like i showed up in phd and a lot of these cats are like 21 22 years old i was like 27 28 and i had lousy programming skills and i hadn't done any math in seven years and and i had zero papers so i showed up and i wasn't thinking like i gotta i gotta (laughs) catch up with these guys it was like that ship has sailed so it was more like hey uh (laughs) i got health insurance um I've got, they're paying me like a, a monthly, you know, other people came from like a Google gig and so they're like, oh, you know, PhD is a big sacrifice. But I was thinking like, you know, they're paying me like $2,000 a month to uh, just to read and to have like a kind of like opinions yeah. and uh, to like try to prove stuff occasionally. And, and, and it just seemed like the greatest, coolest gig. And I just got into it. Um, not really thinking there was, Thinking like, you know, not thinking like, oh, I'm going to be like the best or even like I have a chance of getting a faculty position or something more just thinking like uh, this is a this is a sweet gig and a, a nice opportunity to to, to, to yeah. be a source that's, of that's entropy. That's really interesting because it's such a different trouble. story. If you I think you look at most of your peers, I bet not many of them have that kind of gap or and there's so many people who hit 21, 22 uh, where they feel like they've got to have everything figured out and there's all this pressure and stress of what you're going to do. Uh, and I think it's a really nice example of where you just you just don't have to know. You you can just do whatever, try some things, go here, go there, and get and wait for some basically some inspiration to hit you in the face and then you can decide. Yeah, that's for, for sure. I think, you know, I think PhD, well, I think this, all the incentives are wrong in the educational pipeline. Like, for example... Yeah we really care about like blemishes, right? So like, especially everything from like through 
middle school, high school, college, and, and the, all the like straight middle of the road career paths, like the most, you know, med school, law school, like they, they look for um, unblemished, like they, like, for example, the yeah. very notion of a grade point average, right, is so, so screwed up, right? Because the truth is, if someone's done something great in the last year, like, you know, show me, show me someone who's so many someone who was like lousy three years ago and amazing last year. And it's like, I'll prefer that over somebody who's just been very consistent in a way. It's like, cause you know, research, you're sensitive mm-hmm. a little bit more to the trajectory, like where's, where's somebody heading. Um, and you're also more sensitive to the the max, not the mean like research. If, if somebody, if somebody spends a year and they try to work on 10 different, really important problems and eight of them, they just are you know completely misguided and all over the place and then two of them they solve some important open problem or or, yeah. or make some big technological leaps like that was a great year that was an amazing year you you are you are crushing it so so like there's something about the attitude of risk taking um in general that in research um you know so so so, so you know you talk about like a lot of people like my path is unusual i think it is but it's like PhD, actually, I think in general, historically, um, maybe I'm an extreme case, but I think in yeah. general, they are not as concerned with this, like, give me someone consistent as like someone hiring someone for like a consulting firm or whatever, especially once someone's already done research, right? If someone's done great research, honestly, if you've done a, uh, if you've written one serious first author, like granted, like, I'm not endorsing this yeah. idea that like, you have to have already done great <laughs> yeah. research to get into PhD. I think that's a bit dangerous and circular and maybe maybe if anything stifling now but but that said the the cool thing about that is like you could have totally bombed something earlier in your life and it gives people this grounds that they're just like you know screw off that doesn't matter anymore um like don't talk about their grades from undergrad this person you know like look read the paper um and, and some people that that matters more so i think i think phd is much more progressive in this way than than other kind of walks of life and and they they they're they're in tune with this um but that said right it's like in order to tap into that i think it often ends up relying that you've already somehow had access to to being able to do research which which granted these days in machine learning there's never been more access but it's still it's still you know there's like a privilege and balance between someone who was on the path and, and someone who you know around, you know, great researchers at Berkeley and connected in that way versus somebody who's um, trying to figure this stuff out on their own, like the probability that they're going to wind up with a, you know, a few uh, important papers to their name when they're looking to get into grad school. And so what did did you look to study then when you you got to doing your PhD? I mean, God, I had no idea. I just was like, I'm going to do machine learning. (laughs) If someone said, like, if someone said when, when I was first making that decision, someone was like, you know, well, uh, what is a Bayesian network or what is, uh, you know, softmax regression or so, you know, very simple models. I, I wouldn't have known the answer. Um, but uh, I, I did know that I was interested in problems relating to medicine. So so that was kind of my um, I, I had that. And the other thing that I had maybe that was unusual among um, science PhD students um, was I was, had a, a reasonable amount of command as a writer. And so my, my statement was uh, technically naive, well, but, um, <laughs> you know, uh, the, yeah, it was constructed with, with, with reasonably coherent prose and um, stated kind of medical problems I was interested in, thought, you know, 
these kinds of predictive tools could could maybe have an impact. And that that made me appealing potentially, you know, I, I didn't get admitted mm. to CMU, I didn't get admitted to Berkeley or MIT or whatever, but people who were anyone who then and I think that's still the case of like, you know, the schools can they could they could just take only people who have like either won an Olympiad or 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 some or already published a top yeah. paper. It, it's very difficult to get in. Um even when I've been involved in admissions, it's very hard to push back on that just because when you're looking yeah. at people side by side, it's hard for people to overlook that. Um, but I think you, you step out just a little bit and that's changed. I think across the board, it's gotten more competitive than when I applied. Like, I don't even know if if that ladder still exists for people like me today um, or people who today are like I was then. I don't know if, you know, they might have to go through a master's degree yeah. first or something or, or, or have to cast a wider net. But back then, you know, if you step just outside the very most competitive schools, there are a lot of people who it's like, well, do I want to take someone who's a known quantity that is, you know, so-so, or do I want to take a chance on this, like, wild card? And um, and I think, like, what I was able to offer is, like, there, there were a few people who reached out mm-hmm. to me specifically because of my statement. And it was either because they were interested in, like, medical informatics type problems or, like, in, in the case of UCSD, it was a combination of that and, and the advisor who admitted me was someone who... Um, is especially um, impatient with uh, the quality of like typical like engineering student writing. And and that was like, that's his sticking point. And so it was someone who was maybe unusually attuned to that aspect, like not, not, not the sort of stereotype of, you know, uh, throw out the verbal and uh, just look at their math scores. And um, so, so that, that gave me a, you know, uh, a route. In. Okay. Okay. Perfect. So um and then you you obviously did settle on something and have <laughs> gone through that. So what, what... Oh, yeah, yeah. So what was I interested in? Yeah, so, so basically I got admitted. <laughs> Sorry, we, we went a bit far. So, so basically I was admitted because uh, I, I, was in, I wrote this statement saying I was interested in working with medical problems, and they matched me up mm-hmm. with something called the Division of Biomedical Informatics. And they, they had this grant, basically like a three-year fellowship for students that they could award to some number of students. And so they, they were looking to hire someone. Um, they were looking to back somebody. Uh, they, they often like drew their students mm-hmm. from bioinformatics or from, from the med school. And they had been looking to draw uh, someone who was like a core CS student. And I was admitted through CS. So basically, I got, I got hooked up with this NIH uh, training grant that gave me like a three-year fellowship to work on uh, medical informatics type okay. problems. But it was like a pretty open mandate. And and then um, and then like very very shortly after I joined BHD, my advisor um, my advisor got hired by Amazon as okay. a uh, like director of machine learning, and so I, I had a lot of time. We we I, I got lucky that you know one idea one kind of wacky idea that I had because I didn't even know how to build the models themselves, but I noticed there was something very wacky about the way that people evaluate their models. So we, we got to write one paper together because I kind of was able to crystallize this idea mm. and like w- work out the mathematical details and we published a paper. Uh, but then after that, basically my advisor left and was at Amazon and, and it was sort of in this moment of um, do, do I do I try to find another advisor? Do I just kind of, am I going to be remotely advised or am I going to be mm. uh, just kind of like on my own doing my thing? Uh, I just kind of, you know, I think I think some you know there's something about being PhD that's like it's a little bit like going on a walkabout or something like uh, some people have an advisor that really coddles them or like basically hands them on a silver platter like their first couple papers um, it's like this is an idea it's going to work I can help yeah. you work out mathematical details I need you to implement the code or something um, 
and in some ways that gives them a, a huge leg up because they they get running and they 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 they've been represented at top conference and you know then they get big internship or whatever the the flip side of it is like there's a, a potential that you don't you don't ever become a, a truly independent researcher um and i kind of just had this like early early point at like you know, spring semester of my first year, I was basically kind of on my own. Um, and, you know, my advisor was, was relatively hands off in the first place. But then after that, it was like, you know, we, we would chat, a, you know, a few times, you know, maybe once per quarter or something. Right. So I was basically just doing my own thing. And it was right at the time that deep learning was blowing up and becoming the big thing in machine learning. And there weren't that many people at UCSD um, in a CS department who are working on it. There, there was one, one guy, um, and, and so I sort of like um, sort of was in this moment of at that point in time mm. in 2014 spring, right, of just, uh, you know, and, and I wasn't I wasn't yet preoccupied with paper deadlines or like what was the what and I didn't I, I wasn't deep enough into the community to have a sense of what the orthodoxy was. So I wasn't like, oh, screw this deep learning stuff or it's not mathematically rigorous because I wasn't even um I didn't, I didn't know enough uh, learning theory maybe to have fallen in love with it um, and to, uh, to, to be skeptical mm. of, of models that, that weren't backed by like similarly beautiful theory. And so I just kind of, you know, I, I think the, that point in time when, when deep learning was blowing up, the Internet was changing kind of the mode of dissemination of information. Like there was a lot more good tutorial content. There was a lot more good open source code that you could access to, to start implementing this stuff. You didn't yeah. you weren't dependent upon the the software infrastructure of a big lab. Um, I started working in deep learning from maybe 2014. It took me maybe like uh, one year before I really went from being interested in it to starting to write a lot of papers. But because I didn't have anyone, I didn't have anyone yeah. who was like driving the research. I wasn't like in a lab. I was kind of just like on my own at that point. Um, once, once things clicked, um, I then became very productive because like once I got paper in a top conference, it was like, it was like a collaboration that I had forged. I built the connections to get the data from, you know, I had implemented the models. I wrote every word of the paper, you know, like once, once I'd gone through that process and finally cracked it, then it was like, well, I, yeah. you know, suddenly it's like, well, I could do this again. <laughs> um, and, and, and then, then suddenly, so I suddenly was in a point where, where I, I got, at least on paper, a lot more productive, even, even though like that year of, you know, PhDs like that, like when you're, when, when you're writing papers is in, in some way, not when you're doing the work, you're sort of like getting the payoff from all everything that you learned, everything you built up to over some previous period of time when you were, you know, like, like the moment when you're, when you're pushing information out is, 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 a uh, is, is partly like reflecting the work you were doing when you were taking information in. Um, and so I actually came full circle and got back into healthcare stuff because like deep learning was the big thing methodologically, but everyone was applying it to images and everyone was applying it to natural language technology. Um, and then I had some friends, uh, I had a friend who was a PhD student at USC, David Kale, who had been um, a data scientist at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. And so we started thinking um, at the time that like recurrent neural networks were, were changing things and speech recognition and uh, language modeling and natural language translation. These are models with current neural networks that sort of are, are really great at capturing sort of sequential structure. Yeah. So you could think of a sentence as a sequence because it's a sequence of words. Um, and previous approaches to machine learning typically would deal like if you're doing classification of sentences or something like this, you would you would basically uh, find some way to like smush the sentence into just a fixed length vector. 
So you do something like a bag of words. Mm -hmm. You would just say for every word in the vocabulary, how many times does this word occur? Right. So you would like lose all information about the syntax, the structure, the, uh, you, the the very order of the words was like obliterated in that representation. And then you'd feed this into like a classical, you know, as support vector machine, uh, logistic regression, whatever. It's be like a standard way of doing text classification. Then that was considered really hard to beat. And suddenly recurrent neural networks, basically what you do is you, you preserve all that structure. And what you say is, hey, I don't need to represent the whole sentence as a fixed length vector. I can break it up into a sequence of inputs where I'm going to have one input per word. And then the model is going to, you know, basically process this data by ingesting, you know, one, you know, one sequence step at a time, one word at a time. So we were thinking, hey, um, instead of thinking about words, uh, what about uh, uh, these children in the pediatric intensive care unit? And, and David um, had these deep collaborations with CHLA and already had access to some data. And we were thinking, could we use recurrent neural networks to do things like predict diagnoses, predict mortality, predict length of stay? Um, and so we, we uh, came up with a way of modeling it with the current neural networks and, and all these other interesting issues come up when you're dealing with time series data that are different from, from natural language data. Yeah. Like, oh, you, you have all these different variables like blood pressure, heart rate, whatever, but they're, they're measured mm -hmm. at different intervals. So some things are measured frequently, some things are measured infrequently. Um, in any given time window, some things yeah. might observe, some things might not have been observed, you know, in that particular interval. So how do you deal with like, um, sort of formatting this data in such a way that the model can process it. But uh, we, we kind of, we, 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 we had like a series of papers where we, we started off with some reasonable heuristics for how to do it and ended up getting some results that were a lot better than the classical results. So we, these were like the first paper, to, I think, to our knowledge that was using sort of like modern recurrent neural networks on multivariate uh, clinical time series data. And that kind of became, I guess, a big thing in the like machine learning for healthcare type world. Um, and then that opened up all kinds of other, you know, potential um, collaborations, and you know, um, so 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 yeah, you know, I think I think from that point, um, I, I also because I, I sort of was a little bit advisorless earlier mm. in PhD, I had a lot of freedom to sort of rotate in and out of industry. So I, I only did a four and a half year PhD before I got this faculty job. Um, so, okay. uh, and that basically meant that it was like three and a half years in the PhD when I accepted the job. Um, but basically from like that second year on, I was, well, I spent my yeah. first summer at Microsoft Research in Bangalore, which is like a normal thing, do an internship and PhD. But from like the second summer on, I was, I, I did, I, I was at Amazon Core Machine Learning. Then I was back at Microsoft Research this time in Redmond for, for six months. Then, uh, then I moved over to Amazon AI where, where I still consult mm -hmm. with them. Um, back when that team had like, you know, a handful of scientists, um, and, uh, Anima Nankumar, who, who's now uh, a Caltech professor and, uh, director of, uh, machine learning research at, at, at NVIDIA at the time she, she had just come to Amazon AI and was building a team. And, um, I kind of had this kind of mobility <laughs> because, um, I don't know, I was just, had been kind of independent and there was, there was. I was really telling me what to do. I, at that time, I had taken on a co-advisor at uh, PhD, but who was very, uh, you know, um, you know, kind of gave me a lot of freedom. Uh, Julian McCauley, who, who does a lot of great work and uh, mm -hmm. like big data and like recommender systems and social network type research. But, you know, we connected and I, I learned a lot from him about how to do empirical work. And, and yeah, you know, it just kind of became this sort of blur. I just started, you know, once I became independent and started being able to collaborate with lots of different people, um, it even changed the dynamic because like once when I was at Amazon, we were building this team really fast and a lot, there were a lot of interns that we had who didn't, you know, someone had to like direct them in research. 
And weirdly, like the the thing that a lot of people were like missing was choosing, you know, like identifying an important research question, deciding what to do next, writing a paper, um, the things that like normally an advisor is doing for the student, but I didn't have anybody to do that for me for a, a lot of part of PhD. So I sort of naturally stepped into this role of yeah. like being an advisor, even though I was an intern, I was like advising other interns. And so at some point they just were like, um, <laughs> and then I got a faculty offer at Carnegie Mellon and they were just like, this is ridiculous. Let's just make you a, let's just make you a full-time scientist. So I spent my last year at PhD also simultaneously, um, being a full-time scientist at Amazon AI and then, then came over here. So that's my whole story. Okay. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's quite a, a very, that's just very unusual. <laughs> yeah, it's not how things often go. And even at, um, once you've got more onto a pathway, it's then chopping and changing left and right. So I, I suppose that really leads us because you were uh, talking a lot about sort of the machine learning for um this medical place and then the AI stuff as well. What 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 do you think the sort of key learnings were in terms of the, the research? You know, what did you discover? Uh, what kind of application does it have? How does it affect average people or uh, the businesses that you're working with and, and those sorts of things? Um, well, machine learning is having a huge amount of effect in the world in a, in a diverse set of applications. Part of what makes it hard to reason about or think about is like a, from, 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 from a standpoint as like a citizen or a regulator, um, is that it's not like uh, weapons technology where you're like, what is this? It's an explosive. What does it do? It kills people. Um, okay, like we got to figure out how this technology is go- going to be applied to kill people and you know limit the number of people that get killed. Right? It's like yeah. some technologies that have a, a very clear use, very clear like anticipated machine learning. It's very hard to come with very you know what you want as a regulator is to be able to come not to have to come up with nine thousand rules for every single. Um, per industry per per day of the week per per state per you know um but you, you like to be able to say oh no like this is this is this is what you can and can't do with a gun and and, and the problem with machine learning is that it's being used um for for for, all, for almost everything or at least if not for everything in almost every industry it's not being either applied or misapplied so mm-hmm. like that it, it's just crazy right so you know over the over the last period of time you know um Machine learning is now, and not just, you know, there was always maybe even aspects of machine learning or pattern recognition in a lot of these systems, but, you know, sort of the modern approach to machine learning of like, you know, fully data-driven systems with a very, very minimal amount of human um, prior code and knowledge are, are now being, you know, basically what drives almost all speech recognition. Um, it's what drives almost all machine translation. It's also what's being used to recognize faces in, in, in surveillance systems, but also on Facebook to help people tag photographs. Um and so, you know, it's what is used to determine whether email is spam or not. It's what's used to to recommend uh, advertisements or to uh, um, to, uh, to to like curate products for you when you're when you're using, say, like Amazon. And you know, you you look at the the personalized recommendations. Yeah. Um, the the star rating is now like a personalized star rating. That, that's um, you know, I don't I don't know I don't even know. Um, and I couldn't tell you if I did, but like what, what the exact recipe is of, of how that problem is formulated. Um, but, but, but it's driven, you know, it says, it says when you go on the website, you know, by, by some ML algorithm that's, that, that's um, trying to, trying to learn from data. So, so, so the technology is used um, everywhere. And, you know, the, the, we basically have one great hammer, which is we're really good at making predictions based on historical data. Okay. So it's like we assume that historical data is representative of the future. And then um, we, we take some 
some set of attributes in the historical data, and we call that like the context or the input. And we take some other part of the historical data, um, some other set of attributes, and we call that like the thing we're trying to predict. Mm. Obviously, you want to make sure that like the thing you're calling the input or the context is something that will be available at the time that you uh, need to make the prediction, right? So like, mm-hmm. I don't want to predict whether or not you're going to die based on uh, whether or not you had a funeral the day after or something, because uh, at the time that I need to make that prediction, I, w- I won't know whether I can't, I won't be able to access the future, right? So, yeah. Um, but uh, w- what we're able to do is in that case, we have these models um, for reasons uh, sometimes known, but, but many of them unknown. Like we don't really know why neural networks um, generalize as well as they do to, to unseen data from the same distribution. It, it, it defies a lot of the conventional thinking and statistics and learning theory. Um, so it's like a big theoretical puzzle there. But for better or worse, we have these, we have these great pattern recognizers and we're able, whether it's recognizing, you know, predicting given a sentence in English, what will be the first word of its translation in French? And then given that word together with the input sentence, what will be the second word? Or or recognizing faces in photographs or for any of these things, we have, you know, or, or, or even, you know, now in medicine, like uh, recognizing, um, say, like various, uh, you know, dermatologic conditions based on photography or, 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 you know, pathogens based on, you know, microscopy or something like that. This technology is extremely um, powerful. The problem then is, well, you say, which, you know, people then say AI is going to do everything. You know, we're gonna, your next doctor is going to be an AI. Your boss is going to be an AI. All this, this kind of, there's this whole hysterical yeah. kind of uh, frothy language about what's happening in machine learning. And what's happening there is basically people are just, a lot of people don't really know what prediction is. They don't know what machine learning is doing. And even the ones who do, you have, you have like the public who's talking about it who don't really understand what, what what prediction is and what these systems are doing. On the technical side, I think you have a lot of people who've gotten amazingly good at working on prediction problems that have never thought about what is actually the the structure and and uh, you know nature of real world problems that are that are not prediction problems. So uh, and then and then at the same time, there's also a huge amount of money and and a lot of financial incentives to be perhaps like a little bit hyperbolic, right? And, and so, so people, when they say your next doctor will be an AI, AI," you know, they're not thinking clearly about, well, what does a doctor do? Is a doctor just making uh, predictions about what do I think would happen if I did the thing that historically was most likely to happen? And it's not what you're doing, right? Like very often you're doing like counterfactual reasoning. You think if I took this patient who maybe was going to keep getting this drug, and if I were to give him a different treatment, um, what do I think would happen? Mm. Right? So... Um, there's a lot of things that you don't have historical data for, but you know something about the mechanism of the world that allows you to, like, you've never punched your boss in the face and let, and yet you don't do it. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, you, like <laughs> you actually step back. So this, this is something that, you know, maybe the field of, of causality, which granted is now limited much more to not, you know, not to full descriptions of the entire world and all its complexity, but, you know, little systems with, um, a, a reasonably small set of variables that describe important aspects of a particular system, but still like within that domain, people who work on causality very seriously, like Yuta Pearl and, you know, his, his acolytes um, think very seriously about, um, but a lot of people in machine learning don't, right. Which is um, this, this, how do I incorporate knowledge of mechanism or structural models of how the world works together with my data to, um, sort of draw inferences about what would happen 
in a context that is not represented in the historical data. Like if I were to intervene and do something different than what is the normal thing, if I were to create a new policy. So machine learning, what you often have is just like predictive models and then people just coming up with kind of uh, sloppy heuristics for, you know, basically just coming up with, uh, like think about a recommender system. What is a recommender system predicting? Is it saying, is it, is it actually modeling the world in which the whole user experience is different on account of the recommender system? No. What they're doing is say, assuming that I'm, I live in the world um, where, you know, the, the old version of the website is there. If I saw this user in this item, if I saw this user rate this item, what star rating do I think they're likely to give? But what it doesn't say is if I suddenly change what exposures everyone in the entire population of customers have by showing them different products in the recommender system, that's going to right, that's going to change what products they see. It's going to leave change what they buy, and it's ultimately going to change what reading uh, what ratings they live. And then you know if you retrain a machine learning model, it's going to give you a different answer now because you've actually changed the world, and this has changed the data that you subsequently see. And this kind of um, uh, like unmodeled linkage between between you know the, the the outputs of the model and then the data that subsequently form the inputs to the model in the next step, like these kinds of dynamics and feedback loops, you know, in some ways they're they're closer to the kinds of things that economists think more rigorously about. Which is one cool thing about sitting like at CMU. I'm my my home department's actually in the business school, which is an unusually maybe quantitative business school. But then I also am an affiliate faculty in the machine learning department and, and the school of public policy, which gives like a nice window on these different things. And machine learning, we think very seriously about the pattern recognition part in business. They think very seriously about incentives and feedback loops and and systems and 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 where um, you know what's the equilibria, right? And they think about these mechanisms and you know game theoretic. Uh, or, or, or otherwise structural modeling type approaches, but they don't necessarily think about the role that a pattern recognition system has in in driving the decisions that form part of this loop. So there's these two things that I think put together are going to be like the important, like I think a lot of the important problems of our time require this kind of like bilingual um, interdisciplinary research that, um, you know, right now is very rare, but that's kind yeah, of... But- uh, a big part of my research. Yeah, yeah it's now. very hard to sit it all in like one silo. Or like you say, you've got the yeah the inputs that you're putting into your algorithm to predict something. If you just change the input slightly, you give completely different results. And you know which one's driving which. Um, you know, yeah, like can you fix it? So you have a lot of that at the moment where people are questioning algorithms and things like social media, because if you start watching or listening or liking or commenting on certain things then you get shown more of that thing which reinforces your opinion um and so then you believe it more but if somebody just showed you an opposing view right right in the first instance and didn't reinforce your opinion would that yeah right well i think you're you're talking about two very two very important things which i I don't they might be related in some way or or have some interaction but maybe on the same problem like the first thing is this question about the brittleness of models you tweak your inputs a little bit um you might your model might be more sensitive to like noise in a way that you would hope it wouldn't be like this is a problem with like image recognition models right you you add a little bit of static um but not you know not 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 truly random static but like uh, adversarially chosen and you make your model suddenly start making wrong predictions even though to a human the images look the same and that's one area of research that that I work on a bit and that a lot of people are doing great work to uh, um, try to figure out how to uh, 
make models more robust to that kind of interference. And then the other side um, is this question about, yeah, you know, more like what we were just talking about before, mm -hmm. like the YouTube uh, feedback loops, right? And that, that's a bit more about what what is fundamentally unmodeled, right? Like ultimately what you care about is uh, um, this, this ongoing system, not just this uh, making accurate um, predictions of what someone's going to click on in the next step. You care somehow about um, you know, like, like, like the, the, the true task of, of curation isn't just um, maximize the probability somebody yeah. clicks in the next second, right? There's something, there's something deeper to good curation that we have a harder time expressing, but I think it's tied up partly in, in that, you know, there's part of what you're doing is, is, is taking some risks. Part of what you're doing is giving people the opportunity for discovery. And I think, you know, right now in a lot of systems, they're sort of, they're in, the, they're in this mode of, um, and, and I, I don't say this to vilify them. Like I, I think even at YouTube, like YouTube has had so many disasters where they are, they're like radicalizing people into like the neo-Nazi movement or terrorism <laughs> on the other side. They are, um, they're curating pedophilia, um, inadvertently. Um, and so I, they should not be let off the hook and, and people, people can't be asleep at the wheel. And at the same time, the people building these systems are, are, in a, are, are probably, um, a good fraction of them, good people. And, and these are difficult mm -hmm. problems, right? And, and some of these things, you know, people talk about the extent to which it's like the diversity of the, the workforce is the reason why models are messed up. And that's only um, partial, you know, I think I don't want to dismiss the importance of diversity in the workforce. Like that's absolutely um, a fundamental important thing we got to work on. Um, and I think that when you have that, people are more likely to be attuned to certain types of issues and, and be be aware of them and pick them up. But at the same time, a lot of these are just fundamentally the underlying problems are hard and we don't have the solutions. Like even if you had the best people in the world with the best intentions and all perspectives represented, you know, the the technology we have is technology for making predictions. And we in order to make good predictions, we need to um, have the historical data. Right. Um, or we, we need to have uh, ground truth examples of like this is the right input. This is the right output. And, and, and we usually, we get that from like, well, what was the latest snapshot of the world? And the problem is that that whole system of modeling doesn't deal with any of these issues we're talking about. So people are in this weird situation. What they, what they want to do is sort of uh, know something about long-term dynamics or know something about causal effects. Um, but the, the, the tools that we have that are so exciting right now, because they deal with high dimensional data, they exploit big data sets, they um, are able to mimic a human kind of like perceptual type abilities that in a way that no system before was mm -hmm. able to, um, those systems don't deal with these things. And so, right, we have a technology that is sort of, um, sort of fundamentally not yet there in terms of what we're trying to do with it. Um, and at the same time, there's a, there's a huge economic opportunity, right? Because it's like, well, you know, I give you a system and I, and, based on pattern recognition that say makes loan decisions and you say well i don't know it's not it's not accounting for where did the training data come from what's you know it's not dealing in an intelligent way with the censored feedback because it doesn't see what would have happened to the people it didn't give loans to and all this so you say hey there's all these valid criticisms that sort of make your model like you know fundamentally there's something fundamentally technically wrong with the model but then you know um say you're the bank but, you know, you still might be thinking, well, but on the other hand, um, if, 
you know, I deployed in practice and I monitored for a month and I'm making a lot of money. Now suddenly I'm able to make automated automated decisions yeah. basically for free that are, that are making uh, basically, you know, the, the, right, the machine learning isn't really trained to make decisions, but it's the machine learning prediction strapped into some heuristic rule for how to operationalize that in a decision is driving all these decisions. And once you have that, that pipeline and you put it in practice and you find that you're making, uh, you know, millions of dollars and you, you didn't have to pay anyone to make any of these decisions, um, you know, how many, how many companies are going to then say, uh, but you know, some, I, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. Right. So, so people were in this situation now as technology, there's certain settings where it's almost a perfect match for what we're trying to do. Um, like, you know, I want to look at a microscope, uh, image of, uh, you know, somebody's blood sample and just literally say, is there tuberculosis or not? This is a yeah. good pattern recognition problem, but there's always problems that are not pure pattern recognition problems, but we're just that's the tool we've got and it's it's scalable and it's compared to compared to hiring yeah, yeah. 10,000 people. I, I suppose cheap. you've got other problems especially in that like you were saying about the YouTube world of things um having you know your diverse workforces and things like that. I wonder I mean I'm not educated on, on this in enough detail so you can definitely tell me what you think the answer is but just just occurred to me because uh if I am building that with my team and we're you know going through how we're going to predict this and what kind of things we you know how we're going to build all these models um, or algorithms or whatever that start predicting which videos people should be shown, I'd be thinking of it like okay, well I like rugby and I watch a rugby, I want to see more rugby stuff, like because I'm a normal I say a normal human being but a, a nice person in the world, whereas perhaps lots of these teams don't you know you don't have somebody on there who's uh, you know, a pathological liar or you know, some sort of a homicidal maniac. So they're not thinking, oh, oh, wait a minute, if I start looking for questionable stuff and then you use, you just put on the same algorithm, they're going to start getting more and more questionable things. And does that send them down some sort of path to causing them to become something that they maybe had a tendency for, but now you've escalated it and made it worse. But you don't hire those people. So, <laughs> you know, I think you can't uh, put them in there to say, wait a minute, <laughs> you're going to make it. You know, I mean, I, I mean, look, I think there, it, it's, there's part of that I agree with. Like, there's, there's definitely a case that people are a bit naive um, and not, and that is a problem. You know, I, I don't think yeah. that was like your main point, but that was sort of a part of the story is like these people are not anticipating. But the part that I disagree with is that, like, you know, you're like, well, they're naive and therefore they're not anticipating what some pathological human is going to do when they interact with the system. And, and, and the problem there is just that that's, that's not like your main problem. That's, that's just one issue. Um, but like, you know, these things, the ways that the ways that these systems are problematic potentially is not restricted to a pathological mm -hmm. human being involved at all. Right. So for example, you think about like, you know, uh, you are Twitter, you are Facebook, you're not just recommending, you know, you're not, you're no longer just um, recommending stuff to customers and then like optimizing profits. Like you have become the, the ether, right? Like you are the, um, you are the, the medium through which uh, information can, can flow in society. And so, um, 
so think about like the phenomena of uh, kind of well-documented phenomena of filter bubbling, where basically you start, it's enough that you already see the people who you follow, right? But then on top of that, you see this people you follow and specifically those posts that you're recommended to click mm -hmm. like on. And so you have the, the, the natural dynamics, just the basic primitives of the social network of like, you follow certain people and not other people. Okay, that, that already puts you in networks, but so does reality, right? Like I don't have everybody's phone number in my phone. I have people that I either work with or like or I'm related to. So like we naturally have some kind of filter bubbling. You know, we already have some kind of filtering that happens naturally at, at a social level, even before you introduce this technology. But then we add this like lighter fluid on it, right? This accelerant that says not only that among the people that you associate with, we're going to show you only those things that we think you're most likely to have maximum engagement with. Um, and what are they looking at? They're looking at clicks, they're looking at comments, they're looking at whatever. And, and, and so they're prioritizing some set of content over another, potentially creating this way more siloed environment than like sort of would naturally happen without the predictive algorithms. And, and that has consequences. Like the important thing that I'm trying to express is that has mm. consequences in and of itself, even if you uh, don't have a bad actor. Like even before you start thinking about like, oh, but there's like this evil man who's uh, trying to pervert the system or something. You're like, no, just just doing that is already super problematic. Like you you create um, potentially, um, you, you know, you, you pose a, a sort of fundamental threat even um, to to democracy, right? Like this is this is something that I think if you go back and like read. Um, uh, I, I've been reading the the writings of um, I had the privilege of, of participating in a workshop that was organized at the Simons Institute uh, for Theory of Computer Science a couple of weeks ago about it was about um, race and data and technology and the ways that uh, you know it can 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 exacerbate certain iniquities. But um, one one uh, thing that came in addition to the many 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 uh, things I got out of that workshop, which has brought together this amazing group of, of um, academics from across a bunch mm -hmm. of disciplines was I got to meet uh, Martha Minow, who was the, uh, I forget the title, president, dean, you know, grand important person mm -hmm. at uh, um, Harvard Law School until recently. And um, and I just read uh, a draft that she had written specifically about, you know, kind of um, the, the evolution of, um, specifically of, of, of the news uh, and, and, and of, of uh, the recent... Uh, Sort of like threat to the press in the the information age, um, and uh, the, the historical context is, is really sobering to take a step back and think about um, the extent to which even you know maybe hundreds of years ago people were very cognizant about the like. There's a reason why um, there's this whole debate about like why is press protected independently of speech. You you'd think that like it could be covered under speech, and and it's. Uh, it, it, it's people went basically out of their way to say that you know the press is 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 an absolutely fundamental primitive to mm. to democracy, right? Um, yeah. You... So the like it, it's it sort of makes sense. It's like if, if if the source of power is the voters and the voters don't know anything, then we are we are all absolutely screwed. Um, and so it's like the, when you fundamentally change what information people have access to and are exposed to. Um, when, you know, when you are the very medium that mediates the, the flow of information and, and you you monkey with that in some kind of naive ways, there there's a, a huge risk there that, that something um, horrible is going to go wrong. And, and that's not just a matter of like, oh, but there's a serial killer who's, you know, 
got devil horn coming at us. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a yeah, a whole bunch of different dynamics in it. I do think it's an interesting because, yeah, like you say, it's amazingly important. Like if you want to have a military coup in a country, they go after the press first, they go after the media channels first. They don't go and overthrow the government, they take over the media. It's the first right. thing to do. Um, so it, it, we, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, if you look at any propaganda campaign in history, it's all very, very clear. It works. You can almost brainwash an entire country into believing almost anything. Um, but the, the, I think the key. Yeah, it's like the Hollywood scene with the, the newscaster with the uh, like rifle pointed at their head while they're yeah. on the radio or something. And um, I think there's uh, like two dynamics that I like to think of. Uh, not that I've got any particular answers, but. Um, one, because traditional media, it, you, it's more protected, but in the in the same sense, it was controlled by like four old white dudes. Like they broadcast or own all of the broadcasting and major media across most of what you'd say first world countries, and so they dictated uh, where social media media is is nothing. Right, social media is nothing other than the pipes for us to fill stuff. So we put the content out there, right? It's filled by me and you and everybody else. And so there is an argument in the other way of, yes, obviously we need to look into algorithms and how they're put together and are you influenced people? And then on the other side, I think you, you, there should be something around the education to people to say, you are now reinforcing your own opinions. And if you're not making a diverse clicking options on different things and having a look at various different media sources, you're doing this to yourself because you I think you have to be careful with that, though, right? Like, um, you can't underestimate the role that um, what <laughs> determining what people see plays. Um, like, it basically, you know, if you have 8 billion people, in the extreme case, you have 8 billion, whatever, 7 billion people mm. posting content, um, then then all content is yeah. represented somewhere. Everything possible. So, so sort of curation becomes everything. It's like absolute power. Now, I'm not, now obviously, you know, they're maybe not using it in, in, in an absolute laser targeted way of like, you know, they're not sitting there at Google. Um, and this, this, this is what bad, this is what, you know, dangerous situations and, and bad behavior looks like in, in reality, right? Like you have, you have a few Hitlers in history who are just um, driven by um, hate. Um, but, but then you have, you have a whole lot of people just thinking, um, you know, what, what are my short, what are my, what are my incentives? Right. You know, what, what I'm building a product here. Um, and, and 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 where things go wrong is not um, because people are malicious necessarily, but they're they're just kind of like myopically making decisions, following the following their their personal incentives that are sitting right in front of their nose, and 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 not making hard choices when they when they disagree with their profit motive. Um, so so my point there is just say I don't think a lot of these companies, I don't think the people at Twitter like Jack Dorsey or Sundar Pichai or like any of these people. I, I don't. I don't think they're sitting around thinking like, how do we, how do we manipulate people and how do we <laughs> radicalize them or something like that. But that said, you have to you have to acknowledge at the same time that basically their platform gives them absolute power to do that. Um, and so you have to consider like the extreme of of, um, yeah, because because when you talk about turning around and pointing the finger at people, um, you have to consider that like the the platform is that powerful like the platform um can absolutely determine what everyone sees and at that point it doesn't matter about the sources and now now, now i think you made a good point earlier which is when you know you talked about like oh there's four like uh 
for like pruny old white guys that that yeah. control all the media. So so there's something powerful about the democratization or something. And, and some something that's interesting there is that the, those those things actually it sounds like well those are alternatives to each other, right? It sounds like you're saying well. Um, the media is like this, it has all these pathologies Therefore, but in this way is the internet pro- provides, um, social media provides an alternative, but it's actually, um, it's not such a clean story. And it's partly because, um, the, 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 the rise of online advertising is like the kind of eroding the, the, the basic business model of that, that had supported media through, through the, the better part of at least the latter half and maybe most of the 20th century um, uh, that that has created a scenario where there's been a huge contraction in traditional media. So um, a big part of what's cool in, in, this, in this chapter draft I read from, from Martha Minow is, is that um, in addition to talking about the fundamental role, you know, of the press and um, democracy and, and, the, and, and, you know, the primary sources on, on the precise arguments, um, there's also a bit of a good history of the media and a big part of that history, a big part of the recent history is the great contraction of that media, right? So all the local television affiliates, you know, used to be uh, independent. Um, you used to have this massive number of local newspapers, like local mm-hmm. news was a was a big thing. The local paper in each city of, yeah. you know, modest size. And that's completely changed. There's been this huge consolidation of power um, where you have these major conglomerates that now, and part of that is because you know, it's become tougher, it's become a tougher business. So um, the number, the total number of outlets is smaller. And um, also among those outlets, they've, they've kind of been consolidated uh, into um, a kind of more giant, right? So, so it's, these two things are happening at one time, like the internet is sort of destroying the business model of traditional media, which is contracting and consolidating and becoming um, less good at its job or less capable of, of supporting it at the scale that it used to. And then at the same time, there's, there's also, um, these, these, so, so, so it's like, you, you could, you could look at these things as like two alternatives in isolation and which one's better, but you could also see sort of the, the there being both pathologies of, of the way information is disseminated on the internet, but also pathologies of the way that, um, the internet has kind of stamped out um, what was, you know, is it, sort of compromising what was good about the traditional media in the first place. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's a tricky thing and that there, there no, aren't absolutely. easy solutions, but um, that can't provide like the cover, right? Like that can't be the cover to uh, just be like, okay, let's, uh, let's all. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It does end with that. the machines killing um, us all. I'm sure. You know, at some point. <laughs> it's hard. So therefore let's do nothing. Right. I mean, that's kind of where we're on climate change. We're like, well, you know, it's like, but I do like straws and, um, yeah. you know, it's like, it's like, you know, it's inconvenient to, uh, yeah. It's like, I, I know, I know a lot of, I know a lot of people that, that, um, intellectually are down with vegetarianism, right. That do yeah. eat a lot of meat. Um, and I've, it's I've a, it is a very, there. there's so many dynamics to, to these problems and it makes it, uh, it just spin your head a little bit. you immediately like well like for me i'm like well i like the decentralization of information i think that is a better way to be um but we do need regulation in the way that you say like they you know technically would have more power but uh, the other side of we fill their newsfeed so if i only write about you know if every facebook post i ever make is only a positive nice statement 
it's very hard for them to spread negative news. You know, so there is a better, to me anyway, there, there seems to be a better dynamic of people can be heard, they can have a voice, you can say things, there is more out there. Um, but yes, ultimately, if you control all of the platforms and then you curate the content, you can pick and choose what's being shown. And so, yeah, there needs to be this dynamic between the two of self-responsibility yeah. on are you actually looking at the world through open eyes or are you just trying to put yourself down one path and then the other side of the platform is actually giving you the opportunity to to look at different things. Right. And there's, there's really, there, there are... There, there's some obvious choices that are just not being made because they're not profitable, but there are also mm. some just really difficult choices in there. Like, I think you kind of, I, I, if I interpret correctly, I think what you brought up kind of highlights a, a tension between, um, uh, you know, f- thinking kind of top down about what is the impact of your platform. And on the other hand, um, a danger of, of censorship, of getting too involved in determining yeah. the precise content of what people say or what gets circulated. Um, and, and right, I think I think this is an interesting debate that is playing out on a big stage when it comes to yeah, uh, Twitter and Facebook censorship policies, right? Um, um, yeah, it's like they, they, they're, they're in a tough situation. I, it doesn't mean that I agree with the, the choices they're making, but I could acknowledge that um, they're not all easy. A lot of these choices you know, and now I think where they get where they rightly get a lot of flack is when they when they make choices that are just like outright hypocritical, right? Like when they are taking down content that um, and not leaving up others where we're like the mm-hmm. same principles should make it obvious that. And, but part of that is them being sloppy and not caring. Part of that is, you know, like okay, once they've made a decision to start taking down content, what are they doing? It's like they are, they're like, yeah. you know, that's not a machine learning problem. So what are they doing? They're like hiring just like thousands and thousands of people, like many of them living in these like horrible conditions and um, spread out all over the globe. And they are spending their entire days like glued. You know, I don't know if you've read any of these stories about the people who like their job is to um, be like a Facebook censor or something like this. And that it just, it's, it's, uh, you know, I think there've been some interesting articles. I can't remember who wrote them about the, the kind of like mental impacts on those employees, but they're like basically sitting looking at disturbing uh, images. like, Oh, they specialize in uh, the, the neo-Nazi uh, like they, every 15 seconds they have to watch and make a decision on whether to take down another like perspective, like, you know, Nazi or pedophile or, uh, you know, uh, racist image or whatever. And I think that's, it's... Yeah, that's hard to have long-term exposure to that kind of thing and then not be affected in one way, shape or form. Right. It, it's, a, it's a horrible thing for the people who have to do it. It's maybe a necessary thing for the platform. And then scaling up, scaling that up from zero to something that is not just exists, but kind of somehow coherent and consistent across the entire system um is just such a huge challenge yeah. right and um, and you've always got to be I, I, pandering I, I, to like i suppose political correctness that like you think um like this is a stupid example but just to illustrate the point of right now if you were showing people videos of people being beheaded everybody's like that's terrible but yet a few hundred years ago people went on mass to beheadings and it was a social norm to do so you you know, I mean, that's quite extreme, but you've got all, then, you know, are you giving people the option to see things that they 
do or don't want to do. Or, I think like, we've got to be really careful with the term political. Oh, yeah, you know like, what I mean. Like, I think, I think, I think there's a way that it, you know, what I mean, I think there's a way that, um, there, there, there's a, a way, like, to me, the distinction is, is not the, like, was that a norm ever in the history of humanity? Like, I think, I think there's a big difference between correctness and political correctness. And to me, to me, the kind, like, when, I think when you see, like, some comedians that I respect, um, or maybe some, some, some of the public intellectuals that I, that I respect talking about political correctness, the, 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 the right kind of gripe about political correctness is this, like, disingenuous sort, right? It's like, it's not about what is right or moral. It's a notion mm. of, like, pandering, of, of someone making a calculate. Like, like, what's bad about political correctness is it's like, it's not like you've thought, what makes it political correctness to me and not just correctness is like when it's some, someone's making a decision purely based on like gauging how the wind's blowing or the, the, the like rules of the social club mm. that they are in. Right. Um, and that it's not, it, it's disingenuous or something like that, but that's a big difference between, you know, like to me taking down beheading videos isn't a matter of political correctness. It's not like, Oh, you know, <laughs> I have to, uh, you know, in order to, uh, you know, the, the kind of like, uh, you know, pretentious rules of uh, the high society. I mean, I have to pretend not to uh, approve of beheadings, but we all know it's, uh, you know, it's like, no, we know beheadings, beheadings are problematic. Yeah, I mean, like I said, like that's a, it's not a, <laughs> a great example, but the, the, the thing is like, it, it, that's a very extreme example, but the point is, it's like that, that happens in the world. And if you take it off of every media platform and people don't know it's happening, it, you, you've seen we've seen that in history where like mass genocide has happened and nobody knew about it sure right because it wasn't because it wasn't allowed to be publicized and so if it's not being right. you know because you get you get that on the other side don't you something like the me too movement has created massive awareness and now people are like, hang on a minute this is ridiculous i didn't you know who knew that was happening at that level and it's like oh wait and now there's change being made and so but if you just took that off you said no we can't talk about that sorry then nobody would know and there'd still be a problem. Right. But I think there's a big difference there, which is like, yeah, um, but the important thing is what, what is the, you have to, you know, basically, okay. If we say that you, <laughs> clearly nobody's saying you have to take all content off all platforms. And uh, so, so if we're, if we're going, if we're going to say we should take some of it off, mm. you know, or, or prohibit some things, like if we're going to have some, some rules, on on the media then then there has to be a decision about what yeah what those um, rules are well, the, which is the point so the question is like well what in what, what is the difference between you know me too and and, and uh um and a beheading and to, to yeah. me there's a very clear difference yeah they, they are um, obviously yeah. very clear but you know the closer you get to other things the more that line gets blurred and where do you put that line who decides where that line is put that's what I meant. Like that's you know, giving right. very extreme examples, but the point was at some point those become very, very grey as to what you will. Not sure. Show. Like, like at some point there are some hard decisions. At some and at some point there are decisions that people will, smart people, thinking thoughtfully about the issue will still disagree on. Yeah. Um, and that's for sure. I, I, I think maybe one danger, um, and this is something that came up a lot at this workshop. Um, that is interesting is sort of there's on one hand, it's great that companies are starting to at least in, even if it's only a pure PR play, uh, 
start to take some of these things more seriously and talk about them and acknowledge them and mm -hmm. maybe even build teams whose nominal purpose is to address them. So that's super, on one hand, positive. On the other hand, one danger is that sort of the, there's a risk that what's happening is that the companies are like stepping in to fill a regulatory void and create a perception that they are um, they are themselves solving this problem, right? Like, oh, like we don't need to be like we we've got this. Like we've got a team that has decided what is, uh, and and so like when what ultimately you're controlling is not really anymore. You know, you know, like there's only so big Facebook can get before what they are controlling is like the the very means of communication like they are the utility like they are fulfilling the role that like the public square played right mm. um and at some point there's a question of well if there are hard decisions to make who's supposed to be making them yes and and that's something where like you know the the hard line like at, at this workshop they had a they had a panel discussion like symposium one of the evenings and uh and a facebook uh vice president um he's a like a, a bit of a pr mouthpiece came and he basically, you know, just spoke like um, as though he gave this kind of talk as though Mark Zuckerberg were, were Mother Teresa, you know, actually, I don't know, Mother Teresa's maybe become a more controversial figure <laughs> in, uh, posthumously. But, you know, he, he spoke sort of as basically like he spoke as though Zuckerberg were like a public mm. servant who's, you know, as though that, you know, even if he was a great guy, right, like, and I'm not saying he is or isn't, mm. um, that's not like, kind of my point here. It's like he is the officer accountable chiefly to shareholders of a for-profit company whose whose main job is to deliver profit mm. um he's just not that's not what his objective function is it, it it it's not even clear that it can be for him to be fulfilling his his duties as whatever um and so there's there, there's this danger like you know that there is this narrative but like this guy the the main mouthpiece i forget his uh name shrig shrage something like that no i'm not sure yeah. um and he basically spoke like, oh, you know, what Zuckerberg's vision is, you know, it's like he just wants what's best for humanity. And this and it's like, wait a minute, that, that's, you know, even even if we think he absolutely himself meant well, it's like, is that, he, you know, this is not an elected authority. And, and if ultimately what you're deciding is basically a question that that becomes of central importance to the functioning of democracy, then, then there's this tricky question of well, who's supposed to be making that decision. Mm. And yeah, I couldn't agree more. It wow. is right because I have a lot of sympathy, empathy, I suppose, more uh, for for somebody like Mark Zuckerberg because you do get penalised in that, and there's like this two again. There's always sort of twofold to everything, but because his first priority will be the consumer. Like if you're if you leave the Facebook platform, he doesn't have a business, so he has to make it the best experience possible. But like you said, that experience possible well, is then to drive revenue for shareholders more than it is anything else so to be a good guy and communicate great press that's not what he's trying to achieve ultimately so there's always going to be you don't you don't want to say a hidden agenda but yeah how can he how can he self-regulate right. himself how would that make sense well, i think we should be clear that like the first priority is the yeah. shareholder right like let's you know is that, is that uh not not to not to be too cliche but it's that uh the that has become a cliche in the like internet era um and um you know i think it's a little more nuanced but there's uh you know the the, the if you're not paying for it uh you're not the customer yep. you're the product um and and you know i think you know obviously maybe it's a little more subtle or whatever but but i i think it's absolutely important to say you know 
like, you know, you just said like the first priority is the customer. It's like, no, the second priority is the customer. Like, but the, the point is like the customer, the customer satisfaction, the customer, whatever, that is downstream of the first priority. Now it might be that he's taking a long-term version, the long-term vision on that first priority, which is making the company profitable. Um, and that might involve, um, not totally, you know, preserving customer trust now. So you're not just, you know, cashing out now at the expense of the future, yeah. but that's still important to know that that's not the first priority. That is, that is still like a derived objective that is secondary to, to your first one. And that's, that's not a function of him being, um, evil or whatever. It's a function of him even just doing his job, but we have yeah, to so think like, you know, like monopolists, monopolists yeah. are doing their job, right? Um, they're not, uh, it's not that it's not that like a monopolist. I don't think the narrative on monopoly in the United States and, and in the law is that the monopolist is necessarily nice. evil, right? It's that it's that hey, this this is uh, this is uh, a, what we call a market failure, right? I'm a it's in the business school. I could pretend to be an economist, yeah. <laughs> um, but right, this is the, the market, like the you know, classical economic theory, um, contrary to maybe like what you would hear from like the more extreme wings of the Republican Party, doesn't say never regulate anything. The market, you know, always is right. It says, hey, the, the market achieves certain efficient outcomes. Um, in order for the market to be efficient, though, um, we have to, um, uh, there has to be uh, certain certain kind of conditions to enable the flow of information. There has to be perfect information. There has to be perfect competition. There have to be all these different things. There's a bunch of ways things break down. One of the ways things break down is you have economies of scale. One of the things break down is uh, you 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 have a monopolist. You know, there's all kinds of ways that that basically um, uh, that, that that things go wrong. And and in this case, you know, it's right. Yeah, the narrative isn't that the heads of large companies are evil but it's like one, once they're once they're in the position of being a monopolist um then, yeah. then things are tricky I, I think where things actually are very unique to our time and there's um this is i just started reading so i don't want to pretend that i've read it or to speak on it with authority but there, there's an interesting new book um by uh, a former uh, i think harvard business school professor and sociologist named shoshana zuboff and it's called the, the age mm. of surveillance capitalism and it's about uh precisely this kind of the, the way, the way large tech companies operate now. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, um, she makes this really interesting point if I recall correctly, um, if I'm misattributing it and I read it somewhere <laughs> else, don't, 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 don't come off to you. <laughs> vandalize my Twitter page or something. But, but at least to me, this is a point just very early on, like in the introduction of, you know, traditionally we think of monopolists like the, the whole conventional theory on monopolists is the reason why monopoly is bad in like you know conventional economic theory is because the monopolist is monopoly is inefficient like basically the monopolist it gets to be a price setter like in a in a free market with perfect competition everybody's a price taker like the market determines the price and you you don't get to determine what is the price at which goods are sold right um and uh, that's determined by market equilibria, but but the the monopolist actually can set a price, and and um, and uh, so, so the reason the way conventional way you argue that monopoly is a bad thing is you show that um, customers end up paying higher prices for mm. products than they would if there was competition, right? So it's like maybe you you might think in in some areas like if Uber uh, uh, if if Uber won mm. and Lyft lost or vice versa, then you would have only one player, and then suddenly. Um, whatever this thing is where they're basically in comp, you know, basically if, if one of them, 
two is usually not enough players to ensure that you have perfect competition but you get the idea right you have some competition among the players they keep the prices relatively low because if one of them had the prices too high the other one could go lower and capture a much bigger market share while still being yeah you know sort of like famously profitable um with a modern companies is a weird situation which is like hey you have a lot of companies that have a, a different kind of monopoly which doesn't result in customers paying mm-hmm. necessarily exorbitant prices um it's a monopoly of attention it's an economy of scale that that could that influence you know and and, and then ultimately with the the negative effects of this kind of control are are uh, uh the breakdown of the flow of information the kind of like um um privatization of, of of all human communication um and uh you know all, all i think where, where the book gets into it also is this system of like concerted behavior modification and surveillance but uh that doesn't necessarily actually result in the customer say like paying um exorbitant prices for goods so it, it sort of requires a whole different um whole different conception of monopoly than is um than the the law conventionally accounts for yeah i uh it's um there's so much to talk about (laughs) there's so many different things and facets to it all um i am i'm getting conscious of time i realized uh i'm running a little bit over but it's very interesting i'm very passionate about the subject area um because i think it's interesting and there's no real answers yet um, so, you know, there's a, a lot of discussion to have, but, um, just to ask uh, so some closing thoughts or, um, you know, if people uh, have been quite inspired by this, they want to reach out to you, uh, get involved in some of the things that you're doing or, um, things like that. Do you want to just let people know how they might do that? Yeah, sure. Um, well, <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I am, oh, yeah. a, I am a millennial <laughs> according to Wikipedia. So, uh, I do have a Twitter account. Um, so it's just my name, Zachary Lipton, um, and I usually try to keep it uh, topical and post about, you know, the, the kind of issues we discussed today about um, maybe like technical research, but also kind of socio-technical type uh, problems and uh, try to spare people. I don't uh, post uh, <laughs> photos of my dog. I also don't have a dog. Um, and uh, I also run a blog called Approximately Correct. And, you know, the... I started this in 2016, um, back when I was at Microsoft Research, um, and, and I, I still keep it going today. But, um, I, you know, I, I think a lot of people encounter headlines in like the New York Times or, you know, even even trustworthy sites, but then certainly like also at, you know, all over the, the, the media, I think uh, the wider, even more undisciplined um, media where there's this kind of like messy uh or or incorrect coverage of of ai and and what it is and and i try to Mm. maybe write for a more general audience um often about these kind of socio-technical problems but also um doing some amount of uh trying to do a little bit of whatever you know john stewart the ai media um and and so yeah that's approximately correct and you can uh subscribe over there and uh that's always a tough thing because because I, I I value the outreach, but uh, I'm also conscious that I'm a, a scientist first, and so uh, I don't want yeah. to uh, just become a pundit um, <laughs> as, as much. That could be fine. So, so I, I, I don't post that yeah. often, but if you subscribe, um, you know, then it's the, the one month when I have something, uh, you know, important or, or salty to say, then uh, 
Perfect. Great. Um, and I'll link yeah. them up in the description of this show as well, so people can can get straight there and and get in touch and subscribe and and things like that. But I, I want to thank you very much for your time, Zach. Um, I really appreciate. I really appreciate the discussion. I think it's very interesting. Uh, I'd certainly be keen to to bring you back at some point as well as you progress through your career. Um, and then see where what you've done so far. Sounds great. Thanks for thanks for having me, Tom. Always. Um, and thank you, everybody, for listening along. I'm glad to have you here, as always. Uh, if you have enjoyed today's show, please make sure you do like and uh, leave us a comment on what your thoughts are on these topics and these areas. Uh, make sure, obviously, you're followed and subscribed and all those good things. Um, but thanks again, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you so much for joining in today's episode. And if you're thinking about an audiobook for your own research, please visit www.scipod.global. That's scipod.global and find out how we can help increase your science impact. Bye for now and catch you again next time.